When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about those Dr. Seuss books that have been discontinued because of racist stereotypes, including the classic And To Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that, too. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, let's start with Mulberry Street. It was published in 1937. It's about a little boy who exaggerates what he has seen. He sees a horse pulling a cart, and he says, quote, That can't be my story. That's only a start. I'll say that a zebra was pulling that cart. What did you think of that book? I loved it. And in fact, I lo- it was one of the first books I remember reading. And, it, you know, it's so funny. It's so imaginative. The drawings are so adorable. And it's just full of this kind of zany energy and charm. And I think it's really sad that it is being allowed to go out of print. Well, of course, Fox News and the rest of the right have been having a field day complaining about cancel culture. First, those darn leftists want to take down statues of Jefferson Davis. And now they're coming for Dr. Seuss. Is cancel culture a real problem, do you think? Well, I'm probably the only person at the nation who will tell you this, but I think it is, actually. Um, and, you know, you can you can slice and dice any event so that it looks completely different than any other event. Um, and it looks completely irrelevant to any larger point you're trying to make. But I think there is something going on. Um, and, you know, lots of little things add up. I mean, it wasn't just the horrible Confederate general statues. There was also, you know, taking getting rid of Ulysses S. Grant, um, taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of things. Um, I mean, if they're they not could, doing that, they decided not to do that in the San Francisco public did schools. They? Oh, well, that's really good to hear. Um, but, you know, if they could take if they could change the name of Washington, D.C., because he, too, was a slave owner and a bad guy in certain ways, um, I'm sure there would be people saying, let's do it. But I don't think there were any public complaints about racism in Dr. Seuss. I I don't remember protests or demonstrations or demands. This was strictly the decision of Dr. Seuss Enterprises, whatever that is. And, you know, I wonder, did the book really have to be withdrawn from publication? Wasn't there some other way to deal with the one Dr. Seuss drawing in this 1937 book that we today consider racist? Well, I think there probably was, Um, you know, um, there were racist uh, passages and references in the Hardy Boy books, Hardy Boys books, and also in Nancy Drew. And they just quietly edited those away. And I think that's good. Um, And I'm sure that if they had really tried, they could have done the same with the Dr. Seuss books. You know, in your column, you link to 
a report in the Wall Street Journal about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. A completely fascinating story. The problems there were a Chinese character was described in a Hardy Boys book as having an evil yellow face. Criminals were routinely described as dark and swarthy, often had foreign accents. And the publisher of the Hardy Boys changed all this in 1959. No publicity. Nobody knew about it. Parents bought the books for their kids thinking they were reading the same books. Their kids were reading the same books they had read. And even the pen, the man who wrote the Hardy Boy books wasn't told that these changes were being made. He only learned about them 30 years later. So it was a different world. But 1959, they were already at work fixing the problems with the Hardy Boys. And you know, one thing about Dr. Seuss is Dr. Seuss was actually very liberal, even left. Um, He did cartoons for PM, which was a left-wing tabloid. Great idea. Didn't last too long in New York. Um, And I'm sure if he were alive and they said to him, look, you know, this is just making people unhappy. And I'm sure you didn't really mean it this way. He would have solved the problem for them. I mean, I don't think he was some hidebound old racist reactionary. (laughs) No, he was not. So the problem here in these books is racial and ethnic stereotyping of a kind that was very common in the 30s and 40s and 50s. What about gender stereotyping? Have you seen any of that in children's literature? Oh, my God. Children's literature is just full of it. And in fact, Dr. Seuss is full of it. (laughs) I mean, most almost all of his major child characters uh, the protagonist of the story. Almost all of them are little boys. Um, you'll remember in The Cat in the Hat, um, the boy protagonist has a little sister, Sally, but she just sort of looks puzzled most of the time. She doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Um, there's one book that he wrote that was named for a female character, and that is Daisy Head Maisie, but she's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Um, but, you know, I think in books you have you take the bitter with the sweet. Um, you know, it's not one author is not the only only writer you're going to read. His books are not the only books you're going to read. Um, and again, I'm sure if if Dr. Seuss were here today and I had a chance to talk to him about the lack of, you know, spunky female characters, um, he would say, you know, you're really onto something. Um, I'm going to sit down and write a really great book. And of course. Uh, children's books today do everything they can to combat racism and gender stereotyping. I live near a children's bookstore, believe it or not, uh, and their window is full of inspiring and uplifting stories about Rosa Parks and Dolores Huerta and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So this is currently almost a requirement of children's bookstores, although I suspect the kids would rather read Dr. Seuss. Well, um, that could well be. I mean, I think, you know, there, there have to be a lot of different kinds of books and a lot of different heroes. And I think all these new books are great. I think it's really important that we have them. Um, but I myself like the more, you know, out there imaginative books. Um, for example, I'm reading to um, my granddaughter now um, a whole bunch of Beverly Cleary books because she just died at the age of, I believe, 104. Amazing. 
And, uh, you know, we read all the Ramona books and now we're reading the Henry Huggins books and they are so wonderful. And what's wonderful about them is that they they're very realistic, but they're realistic in a way that both in terms of their the characters having, you know, feelings that sometimes aren't what you would you as a parent would want your child to have. You know, uh, Ramona, Ramona, the past, you know, she's very bossy. She's very determined. Um, and uh, Henry Huggins is sort of a dreamer and he's always getting in trouble because he's not paying attention to the thing that's right in front of him. Um, and that's very trying for his parents. Um, but um, they're also something that you don't see a whole lot of now where kids are either hyper privileged, which is never commented on, or they're really poor. <laughs> Um, and struggling. And, you know, there's incest in their family and all kinds of terrible things are happening. And the Beverly Cleary character families are middle class. They're sort of lower, maybe a little lower middle class. But, the you know, the mom gets a job. Ramona's mom gets a job um, as a medical receptionist. Or, and because the, because if I remember correctly, the father who has a job as a, uh, a supermarket manager decides he wants to train as a teacher. So there's times when they have sort of money is tight and, um, you know, they don't have a huge amount of money. They don't spend a lot of money on consumer items. Um, and that's very refreshing. Uh, and <laughs> you think it wasn't so long ago that those were normal people in children's books. And I think they're not so much now. So if we want to protect children from racist and ethnic bad things, where do you think we should start? Well, I think white children need to read a lot of books about black people because black people already read a lot of books about white people because that's mostly what it is. Um, so I'm all for diversity in terms of the choice of books. But I think the most important thing is books that have fresh and inventive language, um, which is what Dr. Seuss did so well. I mean, in so many children's books, of which I have read a great many, it's like chewing old newspaper, you know, <laughs> just not very interesting. And even the ones like um, the Magic Treehouse books, which are immensely popular with children, where a boy and a girl go back in time to different times in history, and they sort of help you learn a little bit, bit about history. But the writing itself is not very exciting. So I think that's the most important thing. Another issue here is, do you think kids believe what they see in children's books? Are they just receiving this information? No, I don't think that that, I think that's another thing we do. And we don't just do it with children, is the idea that there's this one-to-one -one correlation between something that you are given to read or watch and what you make of it. And we know from reader reception theory that people are always constructing their world. It's not so passive. And I think that the most important thing for parents to do is whatever they read their children, they should be talking to their children about it. So that when you see a picture, a, a stereotypical picture of a Chinese person eating rice with chopsticks, wearing a coolie hat or whatever, you can say, you know, this is this is not the way Chinese people really are. You realize that. But that's how people thought of them up until very people in America thought of them until very recently. And in fact, that's still an issue today. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I have to tell you, my parents 
who were both very radical, they let me read anything. They let me read Bible stories and they were both ferocious atheists. And my father always used to tell me, he was always constructing the world in ways that he hoped that I would go along with. He told me that my kindergarten teacher, although a very nice person, was actually on the side of the bosses. Uh, Whoa. I know. <laughs> he, he told me all about uh, the execution of Louis XVI of France. Bravo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a good uh, thing. So, so, you know, my father, my parents had a lot more influence on me than anything I read. And did you believe the Bible stories that you read when you were a kid? No, no, I didn't. It didn't make me religious at all, but they were wonderful stories. And I remember some of the illustrations and, oh, I have to correct something. It wasn't Elijah that the kind widow gave the room to when he was in town with the beautiful striped blanket. and the As, as reported in your column this as week. As reported in my column, it was actually Elisha. And oh. somebody on somebody on Twitter said, why do people always get them confused? <laughs> I understand from your column, you've also been reading Greek myths to your eight-year-old granddaughter. That's some pretty strong stuff there. How's that going? Well, the Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths is just one of the most wonderful books ever written for children. Um, and it explains the myth. It tells the myth in just a very exciting and beautiful way. But it does sort of nip and tuck. So, for example... You do not learn that Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, uh, was born from the castrated testicles of Uranus. You know, I never knew that until I read your column and I've been having nightmares about it ever since. Very disturbing. It's very <laughs> disturbing. Um, we're told the Dolaires say no one knew where she had come from, <laughs> which I thought was but I thought that was not only very sweet. It's also true. Where does love come from? Probably not from the castrated testicles of some, oh, okay. some superannuated god. Okay. And what about the other wild and frightening things that happen? You know, Pandora opening the box. Is well, that is such a common, you know, thanks to my granddaughter, I now know more about myths than I used to because we're reading a whole bunch of myths to her. But the theme of the curious woman who gets everybody into trouble is very, very common. And so you have Pandora who opens the box that's full of evils, which she's been told, don't open that box. And until only, only hope is left behind. That's all that remains in the box. That's our one thing. But also the story of Adam and Eve, it's the same story. Eve was curious. What, what, what's, what, what'll happen if I eat this apple? Let's find out. Or Lot's wife. Lot's wife wants to look back. She looked back. Women don't look back. Thing. Yeah, don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> so so what does your eight-year-old granddaughter think of all these scary and horrible and things? Well, you know, she loves these stories, but it's true. I have to tell you that when we read uh, some of Grimm's fairy tales to her, those were too scary for her. There was one, I forget which one it was, that did involve visiting at night a gallows that had some dead corpses hanging from it. No. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> Yeah, Grimm is one of the most horrifying. Grimm was bad. And you know who else is very grim is Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, the little match girl, she dies of cold. She's just a poor little girl and people don't buy her matches and she dies. Um, that's very disturbing. So in conclusion here, what do you think kids take away from all of this? What do you think kids take away from Dr. Seuss? Well, I hope what people take away from Dr. Seuss and from their reading generally is is a sense of a, the world is big. People are 
different. The English language is, has thousands of words. You should use them. I hope that it just gives people a sense of the largeness of life. And I also like the way you argue that kids can be critics. Kids can say, hey, how come all these stories are about boys? Or I don't like this part of this story. Or Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very important for parents and children to talk to each other while they read. Don't just, you know, I'm reading you this story because so, I hope you'll go to sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> Katha Pollitt, her latest column is titled Dr. Seuss's Mistakes Are the Least of Our Troubles. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for sending us straight on this one. Oh, thank you for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.